Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. I guess you believe that. <laughs> Interesting, that's, of course, from the um, old Negro spiritual mentality of death and torture and pain and sadness, sorrow and fear and curiosity, confusion, having been brought to this country from the motherland. You know, the, the oldest skeletal remains of a human being that has ever been discovered, I'm told, um, is, is an African, a woman. Uh, they call her Eve, and which seems to suggest that the whole human race originated on the continent of Africa, which means we were all black at, at one time <laughs> until some of them Cain sinned and then he turned some of them white. But up until then, everybody had... <laughs> Everybody else have been black, so that's the new revelation you should write in your book. <laughs> well, what a great joke. Thank you, choir. It was wonderful. And I hope you sang that because I was coming. I get a feeling you don't sing it that way quite every Sunday. We even quoted a scripture today. I'm very touched and moved that <laughs> I said to Pastor, don't you just have random Bibles laying around back here? Somebody went to get one, and they haven't come back yet, so. <laughs> I stopped believing that the Bible was the inspired word of God as much as maybe the inspired word of man, no women, only men, about God. Isn't that interesting that our Judeo-Christian Bible, written primarily by men, um, wasn't canonized until 300 years after Jesus, wasn't mass-produced until 1,400 years, 1,400 years after Jesus. And the original languages, Hebrew is not even considered a modern language anymore, so it's interesting that uh, we have this book, this sacred writing that many people build their lives around, and we can actually take Bible bullets and shoot somebody, and I'm a biblical major in, in, in college. That was my, my major, biblical li uh, uh, literature, English Bible. My minor was theology and historical studies. And I'm a fourth generation classical Pentecostal preacher. So I have no business here today. <laughs> <laughs> then I started preaching a more expansive gospel that, uh, because I was speculative. I couldn't deal very well with, with the hell issue of uh, me sending so many loved ones and friends and family members and basically everybody was going to hell except my, my family and, <laughs> and even my brother there was going to hell because he just wasn't going to do right. So that was the whole mentality we had. I just got tired of sending so many people to this customized torture chamber uh, that was superintended by a horned, hoofed, hairy, half man, half animal beast um, who was omnipresent and almost omnipotent or omnipotent, all-powerful, and pretty much omniscient, all-knowing. I had pretty much put my devil and my God in the same category and gave God just a couple of inches 
height above the devil. Um, so this mentality worried me for most of my life, and I'm 61. And I know that's not old, and you know, know that's not old, especially if you old. <laughs> 61 is not old. <laughs> but I'm getting old, and the funny thing about getting old is it ain't that funny. It, my dad's 88, my mother's 85, so I'm dealing with all those shifts. But there's a major shift in my consciousness. Your pastor is brilliant and warm and gracious. And he, he, he preceded us at All Souls when I merged my church, my classical Pentecostal charismatic church with a predominantly uh, non-black audience, uh, a church in Tulsa that uh, is the largest uh, Unitarian church in the country, but we shouldn't expect that in, in the buckle of the Bible Belt because we don't accept uh, Unitarian churches like that in Tulsa. That was sort of the, the, the unspoken whisper uh, for that city that we evangelical fundamentalists had it. We owned television, and I was a good friend, of course. You may know of Earl Roberts. It was on the board, and we were on nationwide television. We were saving the whole world from their sins, and, um, and you guys weren't. So we... <laughs> We didn't think that much of you. <laughs> Figured you was going to hell with everybody else. So that, that arrogant attitude, I didn't know it was arrogance. I didn't know it was mean. I thought it was holy. Can I be honest with you? I thought it was, was chic and spiritual and, and divine. And these different appraisals of God, these different opinions of God, I got to the place where I, I had to stop and think, so what do you believe? And why do you believe it? And how do those beliefs add to or subtract from the quality of your life? I was 50 when I started asking that question. Thousands of members of my church, traffic jams every Sunday, nationwide television, books, albums, award-winning CDs, preaching three weeks out of a month all over the world. But then I, I didn't just ask myself, what do I believe, but what do I believe about me? I'm going to talk from the subject, and I'm almost finished because that's how fast sermons go in Unitarian churches. Uh, <laughs> I'm almost finished, and I ain't even started. The, talking from the subject, what you want wants you, because what you want is you. Here's what I mean by that. The highest ex experience of yourself and the most fulfilling experience, whether it's in Paris or, or here in uh, Minnesota. <laughs> I like Paris better, but it's hard to come back to. You, you want to experience yourself. I said the other night when, when, you, when, you, bury, when you eulogize somebody or bury somebody or push their ashes, spread their ashes in the dust or in the water or the lake. And you say, I love my mother or my father or my spouse or my child or my sibling. I love them so much. What you're saying is you love the part of yourself that you experience when you're with them. Love is, is a very self-centered and self-serving language. I mean, word in the English language, the dialogue dialect. It's, it's not bad. It's just that it, it's motivated by self-gratification. 
I love my mom. She's 85. I love my dad. He's 88. I love going to their house. But I feel so good when I do and so bad when I don't. I know you're not used to saying amen, but if I do that, <laughs> kick it in, will you? <laughs> so, but, but, but when I say what I want wants me because what I want is me, we spend our lives, most of us, impersonating who we think people want us to be. Hey, well, I didn't even ask for it, right? Cool, cool. We, 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 perform, we are performance-oriented. We play the roles, and most of us are imposters. Let me read something to you that I have in my book. Uh, this, 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 there's a chapter in my book called uh, What You Want Wants You. It's in, in the book, uh, God is Not a Christian. And here's what I say about, about this, this comment. The loneliest moment in your life is not when you lose friends, family, or things. The loneliest moment is when you are away from, unaware of, or missing part of yourself, your soul. You are most lonely and depressed when you have lost your essence or forgotten who you are. Because of this, our spiritual amnesia, I call it, we all have become, or many of us have become transient souls, all but spiritual vagabonds seeking our own self, our forgotten self, the one we somehow and somewhere mislaid or misplaced or in some cases replaced with an imposter. Eckhart Tolle says it in his book, The New Earth, in the seeing of who you are, the recognition of who you are not emerges. Or in the seeing of who you are not, the recognition of who you are emerges. It's been said that the true mark of a friendship is not how you feel about the person, but how the person makes you feel about yourself. Makes me think or, or ask, what kind of a friend am I to me? How do I make me feel? Life starts and stops with how you experience yourself. Not your spouse, your children, your employee or employer. Not that you enjoy a service, a song, or a sermon, but how you enjoy yourself. When you go home from church, they'll say, did you enjoy the service? And you might say, yes. Did you enjoy the song? Oh, the choir sang special, sort of like Negro spiritual song. We loved it. Did you enjoy the sermon? Well, there was a color there preaching. And I, you know, there. <laughs> Remember those days. We had a special speaker. Um, okay, I enjoyed the service. It was kind of unique. I enjoyed the, the, the talk from... Patsy, who'd been in Paris, I, I loved how the baby uh, lit, 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 lit the candle, and uh, our pastor's charming. I love this sermon and the service and the song, but did you enjoy yourself? Hmm. I'm not that crazy about myself. I'm not used to enjoying me. I like a piece of chocolate cake, occasional glass of wine, I like a football game. Me? Hmm. I don't know. I've never been taught to like me. If you don't like you, why would you expect me to? If you don't like yourself, and watch it, most of us don't. We've been taught there's something wrong with us. 
Born in sin, shaped in iniquity. That was my background. God basically doesn't like you. And you need Jesus to protect you from God. Talk to me, somebody. I saw the movie Noah, and I'm sure many of you may have seen it as well. The sixth chapter of the first book of 66 books of the Bible. The the Bible is is a book that people read. (laughs) First time I I had an encounter with with a universalist pastor, Unitarian Universalist pastor, he, uh, he started the conversation by saying, we are a creedless denomination. I said, um, uh, so you don't believe nothing? <laughs> he said, well, denominationally, we believe what we want to believe. I said, wow, I like that. And then I thought, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? But the question is not just what do I believe. What do I believe or what do you believe about you? And why do you believe that about you? And how do those beliefs about you add to or subtract from the quality of your life? Because what we believe, we create. What we believe, we emulate. I didn't ask you what you know. Because if I ask you what you know and what you believe, you may be in conflict in consciousness. Because... Many people, we believe so much and know so little. The, 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 the sun is 93 million miles away. How many of you believe that? Come on, be honest. You believe basically that the sun is three. three. Uh, how many believe the, the earth is round for the most part? How many of you believe that man has actually been to the moon? Simple questions. Most Americans believe that. You don't know that, but you believe it. If they came on tonight and said we've made a mistake that the, that the sun is actually 63 million miles, and there was a 30 million mile difference, uh, they've just found that out, and how many of you would go into therapy over that and start? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was 93. Well... Most of you don't even care. I mean, as long as it's there in the morning and go somewhere that evening, you think. Now, these are th- there's a lot of things we know um, or that we believe that we don't actually know and don't even care to know. But what would happen if you actually did, including yourself? Do you know you? And what do you believe about what you know? I don't necessarily believe that the universe judges you based on what you feel. I'm, I'm from a, my religious background is I'm a feeling. We feel God. The service has to reach a climax. The sermon's got to reach the climax. The song has to reach a climax. You know, we're going somewhere from the time we walk in the door. The music is going, the Hammond V3, you know, the, the band or whatever, it's going, to, it's going to intensify. It's going to intensify until we reach this peak, this climax, and somebody goes, yes, yeah. that happened here, they'd call an ambulance, the paramedics. <laughs> Somebody ought to pull out a gun. Yes, Lord! Now, that was the culture. You might do that at a football game. You might do that at your favorite concert artist, but you won't do it at church. Doesn't seem appropriate, but that's sort of a cultural thing. It's nothing to judge or not judge. It's just the way it is. But then when you say, what, what do I want me? I, I want my best experience, my best exposure, my best expression. 
when I'm talking to my wife or my 20-year-old son or 18-year-old daughter or 88-year-old father or 85-year-old mother? How do I experience me? I'm working on that. 61 years old, and I'm getting to know me, renewing and renew myself. I knew what Billy Graham thought and Earl Roberts thought and the bishops and elders and leaders that influenced me, what my professors thought. And now I, I do care what my wife thinks, and I do care what my children think, and I do care what my, my parents think. But most of all, when I lay my head on my pillow at night, okay, Carlton, what do you think about you? What do you feel and believe about you? How are you experiencing yourself? So you won that argument. But you don't, your wife is way over on the other side of the bed. So do you want to be right or do you want to be reconciled? <laughs> Marriage is not just the coming together of two lives, it's the collision of two histories. Talk to me, somebody. My parents have been married 68 years, and they ought to get Nobel Peace Prizes for that, whoever, whoever lasts that long. I say to single people, don't, don't just marry somebody you love. Marry somebody you like. Because there's a lot of people you love that you don't want to live with. I hit a home run on that one. I can talk about now, you, you, you can live, it's, sometimes that's starting with your parents or starting with your children. You love them. You would die for them. You would kill them, but you don't want to live with them. That doesn't mean you don't love them. You just love them differently. <laughs> and you feel that love. My daughter says, Daddy, Daddy. It just, any, any father will tell you, it just kind of pretty much takes all the breath out of you. It's like, oh, my God. When my baby was born, my daughter was born, I just went limp. I didn't, I didn't pay any attention to what time I got up here. Throw a shoe or something. If I <laughs> five minutes. How many of you give you five minutes? Raise your hand. Five minutes. Five, ten, fifteen. Two. Oh, I'm doing good. I got this. <laughs> when my little baby was born, I just literally, physically, emotionally, just, and I, I, I had never experienced that. I just like, wow. That little baby wrinkly little sweet thing has complete control over me. <laughs> That's when I thought I, I, I would die for her. Oh my God, I would kill for her. I would I'd become violent. I, I'd backslide. I'd go to the hell I used to believe in. <laughs> I felt so vulnerable that she could have that kind of power over me. 18 years later, she still does. I, but once, that's not just love. A lot of that's ego. A lot of that's my personal male arrogance. A lot of that is prejudice, pride. A lot of it has to do with how I see me. Many men like to hear their wives, husbands like to hear their wives say, um, my husband just bought me. My husband bought me, even if he didn't pay for it. My husband just bought me. Stroke, strokes the ego. Because the man wants to be appreciated. The husband does. The wife wants to be cherished. Usually worshipped. But the... the, the 
So we're fighting through these. Now why? When you get through with that, it goes back to how do I like me or do I? And if I don't, what's next? How do you focus on liking you? Getting far away from a concept of a God that has to be appeased or pleased is what has crippled the human race. Fearing God or a God-fearing man or woman, uh, you know, it, when, you, when you have all these models and modalities to appease an angry God or this list of rules and rites and rituals to, to please a difficult God, you can become psychotically inept. Some of the people with the strongest faith are mentally ill. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean, but I know some crazy folks that, that say they love God. So when, it's, when, I, when I quote it, the true mark of a friendship is not how you feel about a person, but how the person makes you feel about yourself. How do you make you feel about you? How do you make you, how, are you friends with yourself or just friendly, courteous? What do you do for you? For yourself, how do you benefit you? How do you experience you? Life starts and stops with how you experience yourself. It's taken me all this time to focus in on how, whether or not I like me. When all my, when, when thousands left, we had, we had about four or 5,000 people who frequented our church within a week. It was on nationwide television. I have several books and, and, and award-winning albums and all. Everybody liked Carlton Pearson. Then you go from a hero to zero overnight. I mean, they left. People who had gotten out of jail, I'd married and buried and, and, and loved and helped keep their apartments and cars and keep, and they just walked away. And suddenly nobody liked Carlton Pearson. And then I stood by myself and asked, okay, so they don't like Carlton Pearson. What's next? Do you like or love? Carlton Pearson. Do you know that never even crossed my mind before? My whole self-worth was based on others' opinions of me. My, my, my personal identity was tied up in an amen. Preach it, preacher. I love that. In your coming, in your offerings, and your involvement in my dream, I didn't know who I was without you. It took me 50 years to encounter myself. Scripture says, that the Scripture is Bible or stuff. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's what I'm waiting for right there, right there. There's a Scripture, and it's a very intimidating one as I bring this to a close. Um, there's a scripture in the Bible, and I have, a, I have a, a, a teaching tape out there called Naked But Not Ashamed, wherever the book table is. Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. When I say naked, I mean vulnerable, exposed, open. When's the last time you were naked and felt no shame? Just you, your, your plain, pure, powerful self. And felt no shame. Most of us, if we take a shower or a bath, the first thing we do when we get out is grab a towel. Ain't nobody in there but you. 
if you don't want to see you, you know I don't want to see you. What are you hiding from? Where do we develop that shame consciousness? Care so much what other people think until what you think no longer matters. Wrap your arms around yourself. I got to close. I, um, I have a song on one of my CDs back there. I don't have time to play it this morning. It's, it's titled Let It Be, the, uh, the um, Beatles song, Paul McCartney. Let it be, let it be, let it be. I have some words leading up to that song that are very powerful. And then the song plays, and you kind of go through a little meditative moment. When you hug yourself, you affirm yourself. When you love yourself and touch yourself and embrace yourself, and so many of us didn't get touched and hugged honorably as children. And we feel exposed and hurt and uncovered. And we find a little solace here today in church. Somebody will find it in a piece of chocolate cake. Because this sexually transmitted disease that we call life. <laughs> has no cure. <laughs> Only treatment. And you're in it right now. The disease or dis-ease. The stress and stretch of being. So like little babies learn to suck their thumb and self-medicate while they're still in their mother's womb. You must learn how to self-medicate or meditate. Because if you, if you don't go within, you're going to go without. I give that back to you. Take charge. Give yourself a big hug. You should, all, you should just say, you do like this. Say, you sweet little puppy breath. I just, <laughs> I just love that little snail breath. That, love on yourself. If you're single and nobody takes you out, take your own self out. <laughs> Send yourself a card. Go to the movie alone. I, I've been to Hawaii alone. I've been to Europe alone. I've been to Israel alone. I've been to China alone. I like me some me. And I enjoy that. Now my wife enjoys me because I enjoy me first. She can't hardly keep her hands off of me. All right, I got to go. <laughs> I love you. My time is up. Thank you. <laughs>